0: If you have your bibles if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is our third Sunday looking at the matter of Christian grieving. And we've had essentially three texts during this time. One is the one that I've had you turn to here in 1 Thessalonians 4:13 in which Paul writes, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. But the two additional texts, while they don't speak of grieving, speak of doing things to the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then in Colossians 3, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. The foundational principle of this series on Christian grieving has been that in whatever we do, we are to do it to the glory of God. And as I said at the beginning, it is imperative that we embrace this and we agree to it, because otherwise at certain points in the series we might be tempted to say, well, yeah, I'm, no, I'm gonna, that doesn't apply to this particular situation. I'll review a bit today, if you'll bear with me. I set down some guidelines, some principles, some precepts for us to consider as we look at the matter of Christian grieving. First of all, the nature of what it means to be human. We are made in the image of God. There are two aspects to us, the material and the non-material, if you wish, the physical and the spiritual. It is clear in scripture that there are these two parts to us, but they form a whole. Second thing we looked at was the essence of physical death. What we find in scripture is that death was imposed on humanity by God. And physical death is nothing less than the radical separation, the tearing apart of the two parts that make us up, the material and the non-material, the physical and the spiritual. Death is the separation of soul and body. In this regard, we emphasize two things. First of all, death is unnatural. It is a result of sin. It's not a natural part of life. It is violent. It is unnatural. It is an intrusion into the human experience. But then we also saw that death is temporary. It is a separation of body and spirit. Yes, but that is temporary. All of history is moving toward the point at which the Lord Jesus will return and our bodies and our spirits or our souls will be reunited at the great resurrection. So we need to be clear about these principles as we look at the matter of grieving in a Christian way, grieving in a way that gives glory to God. So we are made in the image of God, consisting of body and soul. Physical death is the radical separation, the tearing apart of those two aspects. It is unnatural, but it is also temporary. We were not made for death. The experience tears us apart literally. When we die... But emotionally, when a loved one is taken from us. At this point, I want to digress digress and look at something that we looked at in the series on creation. I think it will help, and that's the matter of death. In scripture, death and life are opposites. And life is marked by self-giving and self-receiving. We see this in the Trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But death is quite the opposite. It is taking and keeping. And we find this in the first sin. When Eve sinned, she saw the fruit of the tree that was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. There's Death begins with the taking and keeping. She did not believe, Eve Eve did not believe that God had given her and would continue to give to her all that was needed for life. Instead, she decided that she would take it on her own, and in doing so, she turned from life to death. We live in a culture that sees death as the end. It is the telos. It's like you live, and then you die, and that's it. And when death is seen as the end of all things, taking and keeping becomes the ethos or the ethic that drives life. That is to say, being consumers. Consumers. And I think one of the reasons why in this culture we are so consumer-oriented is because most people see death as the end of all things. And so if that's, if death is what drives you, well, death is about taking and keeping, then the ethic or the ethos that drives much of our actions is based on that. I think we would all agree we live in a consumer society. But as God's people, we are not to be marked by consumption, but by communion. We have just celebrated the Lord's Supper, communion. And in this, we learn that life is not sustained by by competition and consumption, but by communion, by gift. God has given and continues to give to us. Okay, if that's the case, if we as Christians see this, why is it that we tend to view human beings as consumers? Well, I think part of the reason is we don't see death as the end of all things, but we, neither are we looking to the new creation. We, we know that there's something that's going to happen after we die, but we're not real clear about that. The result is, I'm convinced, that as Christians who live in a consumer society that is dictated by death, taking and keeping, our, remotion, our emotional response when we lose a loved one tends to be as though we see death as the end of all things. We imitate those in the culture around us who are grieving when Paul tells us that we are in fact not to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. In scripture we find that to be a person is to be and to become a participant in God's redemption of creation. We are to leave behind the rule of death and we are to enter into the rule of life. It's not about taking and keeping, but about self-giving and self-receiving. And when we do this, then we reflect the God that we worship, the God that we sang about in our first hymn, Father, Son, and Spirit. When we come to see, as we should, that life is from God, for God, and to God, then I think we begin to see that we need not fear death, that we do not need to save our own lives, that we do not need to protect ourselves from all other things. On the other hand, if your ethic, if your ethos is death, if death is seen as the end of all things, then we find that this means we become more independent, we imagine ourselves to be more self-sufficient, powerful, and protected. Unfortunately, in the last 200 years, the Church has bought into this individualized view of reality, And so the Christian life is seen as private, over-spiritualized, and really no historical context whatsoever. Apart from the Lord Jesus, we are citizens of the fallen world. We are slaves to death and the fear of death. But we know better as God's people. So in our grieving as God's people, we need to be careful that we are grieving to the glory of God. But again, if our view of death is like the surrounding culture, if we see ourselves as consumers, then in fact I think we will go astray. To continue our review, our thoughts are to be under our control, as we've seen. Scripture says a lot about our minds and the relation to our minds. The direction and focus of our thoughts is to be under our control, even in the midst of terrible grief and dark grief caused by the death of someone who is dear to us. Paul wrote, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul does not say, unless you're grieving, and then this doesn't apply. Whether we are in grief or not, our minds are to be under our control. And so we are responsible to direct and to focus our thoughts even in the midst of grief and sorrow. Then we saw that our emotions are not to control us or to rule over us. We were made with emotions. Emotions are not sinful. But as with every aspect of our being, it has been corrupted and marred by sin. The answer is not to suppress your emotions. To say, as Christians, I'm to be stoic, I'm not to express an emotion. As we saw, this cannot be true because we see Jesus expressing deep, deep emotion. In fact, one of the hymns that we sang earlier was Man of Sorrows. Uh, As Isaiah said, Man of Sorrows and Acquainted with Grief. What we do see in Jesus is that he does not allow himself to be overcome by his sorrow. God created our emotions, but he did not create them to rule over us. Then the last thing, and this is what we looked at last week, is the intermediate state is real but temporary. The intermediate state is the time between when we die and when the Lord Jesus will return. That is to say, when someone dies and we bury them or they're cremated, what happens to their soul? We know that when Jesus comes back, their soul and their body will be reunited But what, in fact, happens, and this is what we looked at last week. What does the scripture tell us about someone once they die? Well, first of all, we saw that a person who dies, someone who is a Christian, they are endowed with moral perfection. In Romans 8.29, Paul wrote, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does this mean, to be conformed to the image of His Son? Well, among all that it includes, it is moral perfection. In theological terms, it is glorification. It is the completion of God's work in us. It's a work that He began the days that we became Christians, that we were saved, and it is continuing. But it is completed once we die in glorification. Those who have died... Their bodies and their souls have been separated violently. Now, Paul tells us those who are alive when the Lord Jesus comes will be instantly glorified, both their bodies and their souls. What about those who are dead? Well, I think the scripture is clear that their souls are made perfect. That the instant a Christian dies, that person is without sin. They have moral perfection. The struggle with remaining sin is over. God has made that that person morally perfect. And this is amazing, but in God's grace, that person will never sin again. That believer will never again have to confess, have coldness of heart to be ashamed of, have unholy desire to struggle with. Instead, the child of God who dies is given and filled with all the graces and moral perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When a believer dies, he or she is instantly glorified and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The second thing that we saw is that those who die enter into Christ's presence. And there are two familiar verses or passages that deal with this in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in Philippians 1, for me to live uh, is Christ and to die is gain what Paul means by this, as we saw, if he were to die, he would be in the presence of Christ. He would be fully conscious and in the presence of the Lord Jesus. That is the gain that he would have. And I I don't want to go into it, but we talked about it last week. This really opens up to me. It makes clear that when a person dies, they aren't sort of in a spiritual coma or spiritually asleep, uh, sort of like general anesthetic, and then they'll wake up when the Lord Jesus returns. No, they are fully conscious. That is the gain for Paul. And, and if you read Philippians 1, Paul's like, I, I don't know. I, you know. I know I have work to do here, and it's better for you if I stay, but boy, you know, I would much rather be with the Lord Jesus. And I would argue to be with the Lord Jesus if you're in a coma or a coma-like state is not much gain. What Paul is saying is that when he dies, he will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus in a very conscious way. Based on these passages, I think we can believe and confidently expect that those who die in the Lord are truly conscious of their existence and they are immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord Jesus. Their death is gain. That is the review. Let's now continue and see two more things about the intermediate state. This is the third thing, but the first thing today is those who enter the intermediate state Enter the company of the saints. Think about it. Each of us, as we are born into the world, enter as individuals. The child is born as an individual. Even if you have multiple births, it's one at a time. The child comes out. The child is born. But the child as an individual coming out then enters into a community, is now part of a family, and ultimately part of the human race. Another soul among the living, if you wish. It is the same when a person dies. We leave as individuals. We die as individuals. But then we enter into a community, the community of the saints who have gone before. Something we really need to recognize, because I think oftentimes we recognize the loneliness of death. But we imagine, because if we see death as the us that they're alone and then they're forever alone. Not at all. Yes, death is something to be experienced by the individual. But then, as with birth, they enter into a community. They enter into the community of saints. If you think about it, when we became Christians, we all did so individually. As individuals, we had to repent of our sins. And we put our faith in the Lord Jesus but then that brought us into the family of God. We became a child of God, part of the family of God. It isn't that we become Christians and then we're individuals sort of running around and waiting to be taken to heaven. Paul wrote to the Romans, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So each one of us has a responsibility, but that's not the end of the story. God's purpose for his people, for the new humanity, is a church, the body of Christ, the temple of the spirit, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. This togetherness, this unity is experienced or is to be experienced now in the unity of the church. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. In Ephesians 5.30, we are members of his body. It will be experienced this unity will ex- be experienced at the resurrection. In first Thessalonians four, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them. So in the resurrection there will be this unity experienced as well. In the eternal state, that is after the resurrection, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues came to me, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, this ties in with what Paul wrote earlier in Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without sin or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We need to recognize that Christ died for the church. We come in as individuals, we become part of something, we become part of a community. Well, what about the intermediate state? We've talked about now, we've talked about the resurrection, we've talked about the eternal state, but what about between when you die and when the Lord Jesus returns? To be honest, the scripture does not tell us much about this. But we do know that for the individual Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I would argue that this can't simply mean individually. Because if you have ten Christians who have died and they're all with the Lord, then they're all with the Lord together. Now, what their existence is like, we are not told. How they communicate, even recognize each other, we are not told. We are given a hint, and it is a hint in Revelation 6, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain. In other words, they're dead. Their souls are there. Their bodies have been taken care of, either burned or eaten by animals, whatever. Because the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Been, uh, they had maintained. That's why they're dead. They're martyrs because of their testimony. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. The picture that John paints here is of people who have a sense of time because they say, How long? They know that the day of judgment has not yet arrived. They are given a white robe and told to wait a little while longer. I think that our grieving as Christians, for those who are Christians who have died, should be informed by the realization that those who have died in the Lord have not died alone. They are not alone. They are with the people of God who have gone on before them. I think that when we lose a loved one, we grieve because they are not with us. But we need to realize that they are not alone. We might, we might have a sense, we might feel that they're alone, particularly if they're buried alone in a casket in the ground, and we might think this person is alone. But that's not the case. When Lonnie's Aunt Vicki died... At the funeral, at some point in the service, and I don't remember exactly when, I don't remember how it started, but people began to call out the names of people who had gone before, that Aunt Vicki was joining those who had gone on before. And it was a wonderful time of saying, yes, she's gone on and she's joined those who have gone before. Now, on the one hand, if you want to be morbid, you could say, well, this is a reason to mourn even more. Now, boy, I'd forgotten about so-and-so, now I'm going to grieve for them. Or, on the other hand, you could say, it's great, they're not alone. They are with those who have gone before. They are with the company of God's people. And while we might still grieve, I think our grieving can be lessened. And we can do it to the glory of God when we recognize that those who have died in the Lord are with those of God's people. Then lastly, Those in the intermediate state have entered the promised rest. In Revelation 14, and I've read this several times, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. I remember reading this in the first sermon in this series, but I didn't read the whole verse. Let me read that now. Revelation 14, 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are those who die, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. By the way, there's a voice from heaven that says blessed, and then the Spirit confirms it and says yes. You will notice that the Spirit does not say that those who die in the Lord are blessed because they are now morally perfect. Does not say they are blessed because now they are in the presence of the Lord Jesus. The Spirit does not say they are blessed because they are now gathered with the company of the saints. All of these are true as we have seen. But no, the Spirit says that they are blessed because now those who have died in the Lord have entered into a permanent rest, a rest promised by the Lord to his people. And immediately, I think our thoughts may go to Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor or are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my burden is easy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. What wonderful words. What a wonderful promise. And yet, for true Christians, we know that there is still a yoke. There is still a burden. The child of God still lives in a broken world, in a fallen world. A world in which God has not yet removed the curse. Yes, we have been relieved of the burden of, forgiven, or of unforgiven sin. God has forgiven our sins. We have been relieved of the yoke of bondage to sin. We've been set free from sin. But as one pastor put it, we wear the yoke of Christ, and while it is an easy yoke, we still plow a cursed field. You may remember what God said to Adam Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." We do have a yoke. We still have a burden. And we still labor. The labor of the Christian life is described in various ways throughout the New Testament. In Hebrews 12, as a long race, and the writer does not say long, but I take this by his call for perseverance. Therefore, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Again, I take this to be a marathon, not a sprint, not a dash. It is a long race. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So there is the labor of the long race. There is also the labor of a life and death struggle against sin, lust in our flesh, Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 9. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul was an apostle. Paul struggled with sin. Paul struggled with lust. It is part of the yoke. It is part of the labor that we face in a fallen world. In First Peter, Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And then the labor includes a wrestling match with the powers of darkness. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And then, let's face it, there is the burden, the yoke, the struggle, the labor, the fact that we are fallen creatures in the fallen world. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul writes the Corinthians, though outwardly we are wasting away. The bodies aren't what they used to be. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And then later also in 2 Corinthians, For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Living in our broken bodies in this broken world is hard work, it is hard labor. But when a person dies in the Lord, they enter into the rest of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are given rest. One person put it this way Here, responsibilities, pain, and temptation. Here, harassment by the demonic, persecution by the world, disappointment in friends. Here, relentless, and remorseless pressure requiring us to live at the limits of our resources and at the very edge of endurance. But there, rest. No more of the burden of unfinished work or the frustration of inbuilt limitations. No more sin to mortify, no self to crucify, no pain to face, no enemy to fear. There we find rest. In this life, we can only begin to try to grasp this by faith. To understand the blessed, promised rest that has been promised to us. But for Christians who have died in the Lord, they are in that rest now. They are experiencing the rest that God has promised. They fully know the utmost of this reality. And I think this should inform our grieving as well. As we've seen thus far, those who die in the Lord are fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. They are now morally perfect. They enjoy the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're with Jesus now. They're with the Lord Jesus. They are in the company of God's people. They are not alone. Those who have gone before us, we don't know exactly what this is like, but they're there with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Apostle Paul, the Apostles, the martyrs, all those who have gone on before. And they have entered into the rest of Jesus Christ. Now, let's be clear about this. As hard as it may be for us, when someone dies in the Lord, it is the Lord who has taken them away. And when God takes away one of our loved ones, we must, in dependence upon God and the gracious working of the Spirit, fill our minds with these truths. That those who have died are now morally perfect. They are in the presence of Jesus. They are with God's people and they have entered the rest of Christ. And I think if we do that, then we will glorify God in our grieving. And we will not, as Paul put it, grieve as those who have no hope. So I mentioned earlier in the series, I said our emotions are not to overwhelm us. But I think in, we are sinners and we fail in this. But God in his grace forgives our sins. But our thoughts and our emotions need to be guided by these realities. That while we are not happy that these people have been taken away from us, we grieve because they've been taken away from us, we are not to grieve as those who have no hope. And as as with everything else in our life, we are to do it to the glory of God. In our grieving, we are to do it to the glory of God. The Lord willing next week we will look at what is gained. What is gained when someone dies in the Lord? And again, the Lord willing we'll look at this next Sunday. Let's pray together. (coughs) Father, death is the last enemy. It is a hated violence that tears apart body and soul. And it does cause us to grieve. We read that Jesus wept the death of Lazarus. So it is appropriate that we grieve. But may we as your people grieve in a way that brings glory to you, that brings honor to you. Not grieve as those who have no hope. Death is not the end. It is not the telos. We are not to be marked by Consumption. But we're part of a community. And when we leave this life, we go to join the company of saints who have gone before. And there we find ourselves without sin in the presence of the Lord Jesus in a place of rest. I fear that in many ways we have been affected not infected by the surrounding culture that has caused us to grieve in a way that is not correct that has caused us to feel pain that in some ways we should not feel or not to be overwhelmed by that pain of sorrow may we be comforted may our thoughts be directed and by your grace our emotions under our control when we recognize these blessed truths of those who have gone before us. Even those from this congregation who have gone on ahead, they are now with the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for that. We pray for Dan and Lonnie, as they'll be traveling tomorrow that you would give them safety. For Tom as he leaves on Tuesday. Watch over them and bring them back to us safely Thank you for bringing us together today To worship you in spirit and in truth May your spirit and your grace go with us As we leave this place I pray in Jesus name Amen